Welcome back to the Joseph Cox Show. This is the episode for Parshat Yitro. This week, I'm only going to do four faces of Torah, inspirational, political, trivial, and structural, although I will do two structural parts. So I hope you enjoy it, and I look forward to your feedback uh, on this episode. So let's start off with the inspirational bit. When Yitro comes to visit, when Jethro comes to visit, Moshe is famously spending all day judging. There is no administrative state, and as far as we can see, the people themselves aren't moving. They're learning tiny bit by tiny bit from Moshe's judgments, but they haven't taken a transformative step forward. They haven't even brought an offering to Hashem. Yitro comes, and he brings an offering of his own, but the people seem to lack the standing to do so. Nonetheless, they seem to leap forward in this reading. They go from being recently freed slaves, being taught through deprivation and even violence, to being a people ready to receive the Ten Commandments. So what happens? The answer, of course, is Yitro. In years past, I've shared a simple idea. Yitro had Moshe establish judges throughout the people, judges of 10, of 50, of hundreds, and of thousands. By becoming judges, by having the act of judgment dispersed among the people, the people learn responsibility. Instead of being dependent on Moshe, they can be dependent on one another. The character of the nation thus rises and they are ready to receive the Ten Commandments. I want to take this idea a little further this year. Yitro tells Moshe to find specific kinds of people to be judges. You shall also seek out from among the people men of character, of chayil, who fear God, men of truth who hate corruption. Set them over these as chiefs of thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Going back to Parshat Lech Lecha, Hashem promises Avraham, or Avram at the time, that his descendants will be enslaved. The promise follows Avram's simple question, How can I know? As we've discussed before, the people need to learn to trust, even in the face of what appears to be evil and loss. They've learned this, or at least it seems they've learned this, from the Exodus itself. But they are no Avram. We can see Avram's greatness immediately before the question that leads to their enslavement. Avram goes to war with four kings with only 318 men. He shows he is a man of character and courage, an Ishchayil. The word is later used, even in modern times, to refer to a soldier. Avram then gives 10% of the spoils of his war with Kedar Omer to Machitzedek, the king of Shalem, later Jerusalem. Avram acknowledges Hashem's role in his victory. He is a man of truth. When the king of Storm suggests that Avram get the rest of the spoils, Avram refuses. Famously, he says, I will not take anything from a thread to a sandal strap from you, lest you say, I have made Avram rich. Avram has shown that he hates corruption. All that was missing, although Avram acquired it personally through the Akedah, the sacrifice of Isaac, was fear of God. His descendants acquire this fear from the Exodus, including the symbolic reenactment of the Akedah with the Passover offering. When Yitro suggests that Avram, sorry, that Moshe find men of character, of Chayil, who fear God, who are men of truth who hate corruption, and then make them judges of the people, he seeds the people not just with responsibility, but with all the attributes of Avram. 
In a way, they go full circle, seeming to achieve the heights as a nation that Avraham himself struggled to achieve as an individual. In our time, Avraham's challenge on both a personal and a national level remains, but Yitro provides us with the first steps towards resolution. We must form our nation around people of character and truth who fear God and hate corruption. When we do that, when we make those people our leaders of tens, fifties, hundreds, and of thousands, then we too can be transformed and realize the fullness of our freedom. Second section is political. So the political concept this week is an, is an extension of what we just discussed. Yitro brings judgment before there's law. Yes, a case law built around the hard cases is established over time by Moshe, but the people judge while this process is in its very early stages. It shows us that as a society isn't built on law in a vacuum. Law must be built upon a society that already embraces responsibility. It is responsibility that comes first. In a recent podcast, I called it civil society. A society that has this sense of responsibility woven within it is a society that can be free that can be lawful, even if it does not start with defined law. But a society with perfect laws cannot succeed if the people within it are not responsible. In today's world, civic responsibility seems to focus on the ideas of ferreting out the shortcomings or sins of one's political opposition. If battling against tyranny, tyranny, this kind of civic responsibility breaks down the mechanisms of enslavement by uncovering and exposing them. This kind of civic responsibility has its place. There is courage and hatred of corruption in it. I encourage you to watch Alex Navalny's movie if you have a chance. But there is an even more fundamental form of civic responsibility, not the kind that focuses on the lives of nations, but the kind that focuses on the lives of individuals, families, and neighborhoods. The judges of 10, 50, 100, and even 1,000 are those who weave the fabric of responsibility into our societies. The focus on nations can protect and even enable the future. In a way, the focus on nations is like clearing a field and preparing it for planting. It can create fertile reality for social growth. But it is the focus on individuals, families, and neighborhoods that actually builds the future. These are the seeds of the field, and they must be planted and nurtured one by one. As much as we might enjoy focusing on the grand scale and pointing fingers at the evils of our opposition, greatness is actually built from the smallest of pieces. And it would behoove us in these troubled times to remember that. The third section is trivial. Interesting small things. First, Yitro says something remarkable and almost nonsensical. Blessed is the Lord, Yitro said, who delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, yes, by the result of their very conspiracy upon them. The subject and object of this last part of the sentence is unclear. Whose conspiracy against whom? We can understand it by understanding a little more about Yitro. Yitro came from a polytheistic world. Every natural force was a god. When the gods all acted together against Egypt, they conspired. As any good god manipulator would know, gods are to be played off one another. They don't act together. 
And if they do as they did, then the Lord is greater than all the gods. Number two, Yitro's laws are the only laws given in the Torah that do not come from God. They don't even come from the Jewish people. And yet they serve as the basis of the entire society. There is a lesson here that responsibility, like creativity, can't be commanded. It must come from within us. Number three, Yitro seems to leave, but then shows up again later. I see him almost like Solon, the Athenian lawgiver. Solon wrote the Athenian constitution, and then legend has it, he left for ten years. He had to leave so that the people followed the laws and not him. The people had to take responsibility. Solon only cleared the field. The people had to plant it. When both Solon and Yitro return, they are but citizens in a body, in a society that they had a hand in defining. Number four, Yitro is the Midianite priest. The role is a little different than we might imagine. His own daughters are harassed by shepherds when we see Moshe coming to Midian. This is not a sign of deep respect. As we'll see later in the story of Bilam, priests in Midian are there to manipulate gods, and gods are to be played off one another. Priests are tools of kings, designated to pay this role. They do not have some sort of inherent respect given to them. In a way, priests bring the gods down to people instead of raising the people towards God. We see Yitro's position in his arrival. Yitro doesn't show up at Moshe's tent and say, Hey, how you doing? Instead, he comes to the camp and then sends word that he is there with Moshe's wife and two children. He says, I, your father-in-law Yitro, have come to you. It is like he's addressing a king and he must request an audience and give a reason for being there. Moshe, by contrast, comes out, bows low to his father-in-law, and kisses him. Each of these men has to learn from the other. Moshe has to learn the administrative and formal gifts his father-in-law has. Gifts he must have as a servant, as a tool of kings. And Yitro has to learn, as we discussed above, that Hashem is in charge and that Moshe is no king. Number five, Yitro suggests that the judges pass cases up based on their size. Moshe should get the big cases. Moshe changes this. In his rendering, he brings the hard cases before Hashem. We see this in modern juris jurisprudence. Most of the time, the most important cases before the Supreme Court do not involve vast sums in money or powerful people. These are not the cases that define law. It is the hard cases that rise up and end up setting the precedent for all other laws. On to structural. After the arrival of Yitro, we come to Har Sinai, Mount Sinai. Hashem promises that if the people keep his covenant, the people will be a treasured nation and a mamlechet kanim v'goy kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Hashem sets up the revelation on Harsinai, but an important part of the revelation seems absent from the story that follows. Hashem says, after warning the people not to ascend or touch the mountain, the people may go up the mountain. But they never do. Not long afterwards, Hashem walks back from the initial idea that people will come up. Then he suggests that only the priests should come up. And finally, even they are excluded. It seems like this mysterious Meshech HaYovhel never occurs. So what is it? What is this Yovel? What is missed and why is it missed? And what purpose do the Aserat Hadibrod have in its absence? 
Meshech HaYovel, of course, is two words. The second word is Yovel. I discussed the Yovel in my special podcast on Torah economics last week. It is the 50th year, the Jubilee, a year in which property is returned in recognition that it isn't really ours. The word means to acquire, not create, but acquire, and it often has negative associations. The sons of Lamech all acquire, and it leads to the breakdown of society. We are meant to be creators, not just acquirers. But the year of the Yovel is something else. We acquire then, through no, no effort of our own, and it is the holiest of times. There is a normal sabbatical year, which is hard to accept economically. An entire year without work, without planting, would seem to be almost impossible. But the Yovel is the 50th year. It means two years in a row without planting, the 49th and the 50th. To do this, to celebrate this, requires incredible trust in Hashem. But it also implies a time in which we step outside the normal course of human existence. Ownership becomes a forever thing, based on our relationship to the timeless God. Critically, the Torah makes clear that the Yovel only works if you believe it will work. The Shemitah, the seven-year cycle, is the same thing. If you believe it will work, then you will have a bounty prior to the Yovel or the Shemitah that enables it, that enables you to have the wealth you need to survive. The Yovel is just the ability to simply receive and to be connected with the timeless divine by stepping outside of normal time. But it requires incredible trust to work. With this context, we can have a greater understanding of Hashem's earlier declaration. The people are to be a treasure to Him. They are to be a mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. As we've discussed before, holiness and goodness are almost entirely separated within the Torah. Goodness is the result of creation. Holiness is rest with the timeless. They only intersect indirectly in the building of the Mishkan, the creation of a place of holiness. A holy nation does not create. Humankind creates, but a holy nation, which is a kingdom of a priest, serves as an intermediary to the divine for the rest of the world. I think this is what the Yovel, this word, is suggesting. There is a possibility of a fundamental transformation of the reality of the people. This concept is strengthened by the word Meshech. Meshech is a very common modern Hebrew word. It means to continue, Hemshech. But it is only used very rarely in the Chumash, and it means something very, very different. The first time it is used is when Yosef is gathered by the Midianites. The Midianites meshech and then pick him up. They transform him from a free man to a slave. The second time is when the people are supposed to get the Paschal Lamb, the Pesach offering. That action transforms the people from slaves to actors, albeit very limited actors, in their own right. The third use is here. They aren't being freed or enslaved. Instead, the word is suggesting another fundamental transformation. We can lay out their status, their reality, in line. In Egypt, they were slaves. They couldn't think beyond the moment. Think about the bitter herbs. You eat them, then you can't think beyond now. Then they were freed. And as Moshe points out a few verses later, they can think about their own grandchildren. This is Meshech. But this Meshech is to be another step. Instead of doing what humanity normally does and creating our own future in the face of loss and destruction, we can step outside the world in which we must create to acquire. 
Instead, we can enter a reality of Yovel. We can be connected to forever and be provided for in a world without evil. We can think about forever instead of just tomorrow. But it doesn't happen. We know it doesn't happen because Hashem says that when it does, the people can ascend the mountain and they are never allowed to ascend the mountain. The question is why? Very few things happen as Hashem shifts his position. Nonetheless, that process of exclusion is critical to understand why we did not, in that moment, become a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, and why we are still struggling to achieve that reality today. At first, the people are all supposed to ascend, but then only the priests are allowed to ascend. The people only carry out one action between those two points. When there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and the shofar was loud, they trembled. The word is chared, the same word, root as the word charedi. They were terrified. Fear of heaven, the ability to do what you can't understand, implies trust. But chared shows a lack of trust. Just like the 50th year of the Yovel requires trust, this Yovel required trust. Trust, not terror. This trust is a core and, yes, frightening message of the entire slavery. Avraham cannot quite trust when Hashem puts his inheritance in the context of his own brother's death. The people can't trust when Hashem has allowed them to be enslaved by a genocidal paro. But here they seem to be on the cusp of trust. The Az Yashir, their experience of redemption, seems to show that they can understand that it all has a context. That Hashem uses both the evil and the good in service of something greater, in service of the holy. The man reinforces this concept. We can trust day by day in Hashem providing for us, and that is connected to Shabbat, the satisfaction of interacting with the timeless. But this trust can't coexist with terror. Terror reveals that, in fact, they do not trust, and so the people are excluded. But Hashem doesn't exclude all the people. Instead, he says to the Kohanim, the priests, that they can ascend. It is here that we get the clearest definition of what a Kohen is. The Kohanim are those who come close to God. Hashem says that Moshe should tell them to sanctify themselves, and then they can come up. If they do not sanctify themselves, then Yud Gevavke, the timeless God, will burst within them. Then, only two Pesukim later, Hashem says that even the Kohanim can't come up. So what happens here? What changes? Just one thing. Moshe says, the people can't come up to Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, set bounds around the mountain and sanctify it. On the one hand, Moshe is saying, I don't need to tell the people this again. They, they, they already know. But there's something else here. I grew up around a fair number of drug users, and although I never dropped acid myself, a relative who literally did hundreds of hits gave me simple advice for going on a trip of my own. Never lose track of time. If you let go of time you might never come back. To me, this is related to the concept of the timeless bursting within the Kohanim who have not sanctified themselves. The timeless burst within those who have not sanctified themselves and they are destroyed by it. But if they sanctify themselves, if they dedicate themselves to the timeless divine, then they can survive. Instead of trying to comprehend and grasp the timeless on their own terms, which will destroy them, they can approach Hashem on His terms, they can come close to God as a part of God, having dedicated themselves to Him. Then through this act of trust, the timeless will become a part of them and not destroy them. It will be compatible with their sanctified selves. 
to put it another way, they can go on the trip and lose track of time because Hashem himself will protect them on their voyage. But what does Moshe say? Moshe says the mountain has been sanctified by setting boundaries around it. He suggests that the process of sanctification is an act of separation. Yes, we often separate in order to dedicate. It is often a step on the path of sanctification, but it is not sanctification itself. With Moshe's definition, the Kohanim might imagine that the purpose of sanctification is separation from the people rather than integration with Hashem. This misunderstanding means the Kohanim can't approach. They are not ready to surrender themselves to the timeless, and so the timeless would destroy them. They are ready to be distinguished from the people, not dedicated to something greater. While many people read the Ten Commandments as the ultimate highlight in the Torah, I read it as something else. We had a chance to be transformed, to enter another reality beyond the world of freedom. We had a chance to trust in Hashem, to come up the mountain and become part of the timeless. But we could not do it. First, because our terror meant that we lacked trust, and second, because we did not understand the true nature of holiness. In both cases, we did not surrender ourselves to Hashem, accepting that which we cannot understand, in order to become part of reality far greater than ourselves. The Ten Commandments, from this perspective, are not about the realization of ultimate heights. Instead, they are about laying the groundwork, the very first steps, on the long road to embracing the perspective needed to become a Mamlechat Kohanim V'Koi Kadosh. There's no criticism here. Hashem does not criticize the people. Moshe does not criticize the people. There is only lost possibility, and possibility which can still be realized. This week I'm going to do two structural parts because that covered the Ten Commandments, uh, up to the Ten Commandments, but didn't cover the Ten Commandments themselves, and they're kind of important. So, at the beginning of the Parsha, we saw the importance of law and procedure in enabling Moshe to become a leader. In a way, the laws that come after, that come with and follow the revelation of Har Sinai, are parallel to this. In order for the people to rise, just like Moshe, they need structure, they need law. They can't simply trust, as we've seen, they have to grow into that trust. Read this way, the first law of laws given, the laws of the Ten Commandments, are not the highest laws. Instead, they are the most basic, the most foundational. In a word, they are saying, don't break anything. There are many examinations and breakdowns of the Ten Commandments. I'm going to focus on just one that explores this idea, the idea of not breaking anything. In analyzing the Ten Commandments, the second tablet of laws, those clearly concerning human-to-human -human relations, can provide quite a bit of insights into the first set. In essence, we have the same set of commitments to God as we do to man. First, you shall not murder is paired with the statement of God's redemption from Egypt. The Exodus was a statement of God's total power. It gives him life among the Jewish people. Our recognition of the Exodus maintains his presence in a most direct sense. To deny it would be to terminate God's life among the people. You shall not commit adultery is paired with not worshipping other things. Third, you shall not steal is paired with not lifting Hashem's name in vain. The only thing in this world that is clearly and only God's property is His name. Next, you shall not bear false witness is paired with the Shabbat. For the Jewish people, the Exodus is the source of our connection to Hashem. But the Shabbat speaks to his connection to the world at large, his position as creator. Failing to keep the Shabbat would be an act that would falsely damage Hashem's reputation. Finally, honoring parents and covetousness, covetousness are paired. 
If we are covetous, we will deny our neighbor's peace. If we dishonor our parents, we will deny Hashem's. By honoring our parents, we maintain Hashem's place in our community over generations. And by honoring our parents, we provide a basis for our own place in the flow of human life. By honoring our parents, we can extend the ripple of their lives and mix it with our own. It not only gives God peace in his relationship with the people, it gives man a firm grounding in his own past. In these laws, we have a responsibility not to take life, relationships, property, reputation, or peace from others. These laws aren't about high moral, ethical, or religious objectives. They are about establishing a baseline above which everything else is built. At the end of this reading, before getting into the laws to govern society, there are three critical commandments given. The first is the commandment not to make images of God. The second is the commandment that we make an earthen altar to bring offerings to Hashem, and so he or she will bless us. The third is that we make, if we make a stone altar, we must not use a tool. And finally, we are commanded not to have steps leading up to the altar so that our, our ervat is not exposed. These laws seem like an odd appendage, randomly tacked on. In reality, these three laws are an overview of how our relationship with God is to be defined and built. They are an overview about how we will achieve holiness in the future. The commandment not to make images of God is a reminder that although Hashem is separated from our community, our objective is a direct relationship. We do not worship intermediaries. In both of the commandments of the altars, it is clear that we don't make an altar of human materials. There is no copper or gold or even wood here. There is earth and stone. A tool is forbidden because it would profane the altar. The word is chilul. An act of creation or, discussion, or destruction on Shabbat is a chilul. We separate creation and holiness. It's not that chilul is bad. It's often good. It's just that it belongs separate from holiness. We bring korbanot on these altars. And the word for korbanot comes from the word karov, to draw close. If we want to draw close to Hashem, if we want Him to come and even bless us, we do it on a timeless basis. We do it in a way unsullied by human change. Finally, the commandment not to have the steps leading up to the altar, not to have steps leading up to the altar, is given so that our ervat is not exposed. Ervat is often translated as nakedness, but it has a broader meaning. In the story of Yosef and his brothers, Yosef accuses the brothers of being spies, trying to find the ervat of the land. They are looking for faults, for weaknesses. The Kohanim have pantaloons that cover their bottoms, so covering their weakness in terms of waist or reproductive areas isn't the point of these stairs. Their physical ervat can be covered with longer or more garments. This ramp is about something else. I believe it is about how we ascend to Hashem. If we ascend stairs, it highlights the levels that separate us. It highlights our weakness, our limitations in the face of the timeless divine. But ascending a ramp, a continuum, covers our weaknesses. It hides our distance from true timelessness. And it tells us that when we want to approach Hashem, we do it on His terms. We don't highlight our weakness. Instead, we cover it so that we can raise ourselves up instead of bringing Hashem down. These laws thus show us that one, we seek a direct relationship to Hashem, two, that relationship is built on timeless and thus intrinsically holy means, and three, when we, we draw close to Hashem, we do it by raising ourselves up. Bringing these laws together, we see the Ten Commandments are about not breaking anything, while the laws that follow give us the first guidelines on how to go beyond that and establish a relationship with Hashem. That's it for the episode. If any of the ideas in this episode help you or appeal to you, then share them. You don't have to share them in my name. Go ahead and steal them and make them your own. They'll serve their purpose just as well. Thank you for listening, 
אין שבת שלום.